This morning, as we continue, as we pick back up in the 1689 uh, Second London Baptist Confession, uh, we will be studying chapter 4, which is entitled Creation. And I ask that people read chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis because that's where we find the creation account. In fact, God reveals to us the entirety of creation in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, about two pages in most Bibles. Then he reveals uh, his redemptive plan for mankind in Genesis 3 through Revelation 22. So even though these two chapters only comprise a small part of Scripture, they are very significant. They're significant because they've been a place of controversy over the last 150 years or so between true Christianity and secular science. Why is a creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 been so attacked? Well, it's been attacked because it's foundational. It establishes God as a creator and ruler over his creation. It establishes man as being created in the image of God and in subjection to him. And it lays the groundwork for the gospel. Genesis 1 and 2 set the stage for the rest of scripture. Remember what I said as we studied God's decree about the importance of building on a a good, solid foundation. Well, the reverse is also true. If Satan can cause doubt about the validity of Genesis 1 and 2, then the rest of Scripture, Genesis 3 through Revelation 22, God's redemptive plan for all mankind is cast into that same cloud of doubt. If he can cause damage to that foundation, then the rest of the structure is vulnerable as well. And those of us here today, we we know the creation account. We we believe it as it's presented in the Bible. And so I want us to approach this time of teaching with a couple of things in mind. I want us to be thinking about the significance of the creation, both at the time of creation and in our day, the relevance in our day. And also, I want us to be thinking about how we can defend what the Bible says about creation. We'll begin by reading uh, the first paragraph of this section in the Confession. It reads, In the beginning, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was pleased to create or make the world and all things in it, both visible and invisible, in a six-day period, and all very good. He did this to manifest the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And this truth is reaffirmed in the opening paragraph that we just read. In fact, what we just read is a, it's a summary of chapter 1 in Genesis. It's condensed down into two short sentences there. The confession speaks to the timing of the event. It tells us when the creation took place. It took place in the beginning. The beginning is from man's perspective. Remember that Moses was the author of Genesis. He wrote it under the inspiration of God. And in the past uh, few teachings on the confession, we've, we've been learning about the Godhead and how God has no beginning or end. He's eternal. He's infinite. He operates outside the constraints of time. Uh, these are hard concepts for us to grasp, but, but this concept of having a beginning 
is something that we can easily relate to. And because we've experienced it, we've all, each one of us has had a beginning. Even though we don't remember our beginning, we, we understand that, that we have a beginning. Um, we also uh, are able to better understand when, it, when it, creation occurred. The confession uh, also makes us privy to the responsible party. It was God. And this is no surprise to us. Genesis 1-1 plainly reveals that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we study the Bible, we can see from other parts of Scripture that the entire Godhead was involved in the creation, not, not just one part, but all three persons, God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, they were all involved in creation. And you don't have to go very far in Scripture to see this. On day six, we see, um, of the creation, we see God, uh, the triune God, contemplating the creation of man. In Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. John 1, 1 through 3, testifies to the work of the Son alongside the Father in creation. It says, in the beginning was the Word, or the Son, Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews 1, 2 says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Genesis 2, 2 says the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we, we can tell from, from the confession and from scripture, the when of creation in the beginning, uh, who created the triune God, can we know how God created all things? The Bible says that he spoke all things into existence. He spoke the creation into existence. We call this divine fiat. For you car guys, I'm going to describe what fiat is. It's a decree or a command to do something. It literally means let it be done. An example is in Genesis 1 verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Speaking the creation into being out of nothing demonstrates God's power, his omnipotence. It's probably one of the biggest demonstrations of his power. Well, what did God create? God created everything. The confession says all things visible and invisible. And God did not just create things at random. He's a God of order and organization. On day one, after he created the light by speaking it into existence, he separated the light from the darkness. And then he named the light day and the darkness he named night. He's Lord over them both. And many times we think that he created the light and the darkness was just there. But by naming it, he proclaims that he's Lord over them both. By naming the things he creates, it establishes his authority over the creation. And later, God gives us 
authority to Adam when he gives him the responsibility of naming the animals. And this was to show Adam's authority over the creatures. God's order did not just happen on day one. His organization, his structure, um, this pattern that he established continued throughout all the days of creation. On day two, he separates the expanse above from the expanse below, creating heaven. On day three, he separates the waters, making the earth and the seas. On day four, God set the heavenly bodies in the expanse, not only to separate the day from the night, but also to mark out seasons and years and days. He gives us the perspective of time and he gives us the measure of time right there in day four. And my favorite part of day four is just kind of thrown in there. He made the stars also. Just proclaims his power right there that he could just do that and it was no big deal. The confession says that he did this to manifest the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. God's glory is displayed in the creation by the great variety and diversity that we see in creation from, from the Arctic to the Amazon. His glory is displayed in the beauty of his creation. The majestic mountains, the vast oceans, deserts, rainforests, uh, all, all of the beauty in the landscapes are, are proclaiming the glory of God in creation. Uh, God's glory is displayed in the exactness and the accuracy within the creation. Uh, the different uh, modes and different processes in the natural world that we see, like uh, the reproduction of plants and animals, it just is beautiful, the, the, the detail that we see that has to occur for life to be sustained and for life to continue, proclaims his glory. The great power that's demonstrated by the creation itself demonstrates his glory. I uh, think of thunderstorms, uh, tornadoes, hurricanes, the power that's there, earthquakes. God's glory is also displayed in his order through which he created. The areas of genetics, um, DNA, there's great order there. Um, mathematics, we see great order. Um, music, the art of music, there's order, there's measure, there's uh, consistency for some people. And it just proclaims God's glory. God's glory is also proclaimed by the great mysteries that are yet to be revealed to us. We're still discovering new plants and animals all over the world, uh, new processes in our natural world that we didn't know that occurred. So we don't have all the answers. If we had all the answers, it would bring us glory. It would bring man glory. But because we don't, it proclaims God's glory. Two of the most important things, the most important points that we need to take home today and understand about the creation is that God created it all in six days, a six-day period, and he created it all very good. And the reason why we need to remember these is because they're key elements in defending the Bible, because these have been the areas that opponents of the Bible have attacked. These are the areas where Satan attempts to sow seeds of doubt. 
And if we're made to doubt the truth that's in Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation, what about the rest of the Bible? Can we believe the rest of the Bible is true? Can we believe that the gospel is untrue? See how dangerous this thinking is? Historically, the church has overwhelmingly believed in a literal six-day creation account. It's only been in the last 150 years or so that it's even been in question. It was not a battle for the authors of the 1689 uh, when they penned this confession, but in God's providence, they, they put this uh, chapter in the confession, not because it was a controversy that they needed to address, but because they understood that a biblical understanding of creation was foundational in understanding the rest of the Bible. For example, how can you rightly understand the fall of mankind unless you understand the state from which he fell? How can you have a right understanding of sin and the effects of sin on mankind until you properly understand Adam's representative headship? How can you understand God's covenant of grace until you understand that we need his grace because of the curse that we're all under? Like I said earlier, in only the last 150 years, the church has even questioned the six-day account of creation. But today, the church has differing views on creation. Why? Because of the false teaching of evolution. And... Let us not be naive to this. We all know people. We know people that, that hold to this or parts of this uh, belief. Instead of believing that God created the world and everything in it in a six-day period, they believe that the world and everything in it came into being through a complex series of random chance events that occurred over periods of millions and billions, maybe even a gazillion years, if that's a word. They have bought into the lie that the world was formed over billions of years by a random cosmic event like a Big Bang, and they believe that it took millions of years for life to come into existence, then millions more for those single-celled organisms to evolve or to change and grow in their complexity into the different organisms we see today. They bought the lie of evolution. And evolution can generally be described as a process by which organisms change over time. And these changes allow the organisms to adapt better to their environment. And we see this uh, generally. We observe these changes in our natural world. Um, we see changes occur within species or kinds. But they're subtle and they occur over generations. We don't see one species of animal changing into a different species or a different kind. We selectively breed our livestock and our domestic animals to get beneficial traits, but we never get another kind of animal. When you breed two dogs together, you always get puppies. You always get another dog. You don't come up with a horse. And evolutionists take this to a whole nother level. They teach that that the kind of organism can change or evolved into a different kind of organism. And they argue that it, it only takes millions of years for this to occur. So contrary to what some might say, evolution is still a theory. It cannot be tested or replicated in the lab or in, in uh, it is just still a theory. Um, it's not 
true science. So when did folks start to embrace evolution over the six-day creation account? Well, the theory of evolution's been around for a while, but it really took hold in the world in the late 1800s and in the church in the early 1900s. In 1859, an English naturalist named Charles Darwin, probably heard that name, published a book titled The Origin of Species. This book was a catalyst that caused evolutionary theory to be universally accepted in the scientific community and then introduced to the greater public. Later in the early 1900s, the publishing of the Schofield Reference Bible brought evolutionary theory into the church by attempting to fit the creation account into evolutionary theory. I'll show you what I mean as we look at three opposing views to the six-day creation account that have crept into the church. Um, We're going to be real general with these views. I know that we've probably all heard, heard them before, but they're false views. But I think it's important that we know these because it helps us to defend the truth in the Bible. The first one is called the gap theory. The gap theory originated uh, with Thomas Chalmers. He lived from 1870 to 1847, so just before the publishing of Darwin's book. Uh, He was a minister of the Free Church of Scotland. The gap theory teaches that there was a gap of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And according to that gap, or or according to the gap theory, rather, Genesis 1-1 refers to the original creation. And then by the time we get to Genesis 1-2, the the next verse, we see the creation becoming dark and fallen. After this period, they call the gap, God recreated the entire universe in six days, beginning in Genesis 1-3. Now, the Schofield Reference Bible actually propagated this theory by changing one word in Genesis 1-2. If you look at your Bibles uh, in Genesis 1-2, they read, the earth was without form. The Schofield translation changes that word was into became. Instead of the earth was without form, it reads the earth became without form. This one word leaves an open door to facilitate the gap theory. So according to this gap theory, if you subscribe to this belief, the universe could have been created billions of years ago, followed by a large gap of time, like a million or a billion years, after which God reconstituted his creation, starting in Genesis 3. That's just a brief, brief summary of the gap theory. The more you learn and dig into the gap theory, the more distorted it becomes. But uh, we're going to move on. Uh, The next view that I'd like us to look at today that opposes the six-day creation account is called the day-age theory. The day-age theory... Uh, suggests that the days in Genesis 1 were not actually 24-hour days, but long periods of time, or epochs of time. You can see the influence of evolution here. Uh, Millions of years. These long periods of time allowed for the universe, the earth, animals, everything to evolve into existence. So both the day-age and the gap theory, they ignore the context of the creation account. They ignore the fact 
that after every day uh, in the creation account, there was evening, there was morning. It shows that the days were literal, regular, 24-hour days, just like we have now. We can also disprove these theories uh, biologically. All the plants were created on day three. But the sun and the moon were not created until day four. If these days were millions of years, the plants wouldn't survive. Plants need sunlight for photosynthesis. Quite plainly, they had to be 24-hour days, just like we have now. Also, the Bible teaches that death did not come into the world until Adam's sin in Genesis 3.21. But evolution requires death. It requires it occurring for millions of years. And in this case, millions of years before sin. The Bible teaches that God created everything and all very good. If he created it very good, then how could there be death? How could there be sin? So you see most these views stand in opposition to the Bible. The third view is called a lit- the literary day theory or the framework hypothesis. It teaches that the days in Genesis were really not 24-hour days. It teaches that they were a lit- literary device designed by Moses, the author of Genesis, to express spiritual truth. Basically, this view teaches that the creation account was metaphorical or that the Genesis account, Genesis account is a poetic and not a historical account of the events that actually happened. And we know this is false. We know because of the, the writing of the rest of Genesis that it's false. We know because of all the other reasons that we previously stated on the other two theories that, that it's false. What each of these false views does have in common is that they teach from the same perspective. They start with the presupposition that the theory of evolution is true. And then they try and fit Genesis into that model. On one hand, you have man's theory. On the other, the inspired word of God. Those two things are in opposition to one another. The only way that you can bring them together is if you compromise on one or the other. And what they do is they always compromise the word of God. They teach that because the world is millions of years old, billions of years old, and because it takes millions of years for species to evolve, then the account in Genesis must be metaphorical. The days in Genesis 1 must be longer periods of time, like millions of years. Evolution is dangerous for the Christian. Evolution destroys the biblical teaching on death. It assaults God's character. It undermines the gospel because it undermines the Bible, which is where we find the gospel. It nullifies the authority of scripture. This controversy over the the age of the earth or the, the length of the days is really a controversy over the sufficiency of scripture. Quite plainly, if you don't, believe that God created the universe and everything in it in a six literal 24-hour day period, then you don't believe the Bible. And if you don't believe what the Bible says about creation, how can you believe what it says about salvation? You can't pick and choose what you believe. 
Again, this is why the writers of the confession were intentional when they ordered the chapters. They began with chapter one of the Holy Scriptures. They did so to establish a foundation of understanding that scripture is true and authoritative. And knowing that scripture is true and authoritative, we can know that what's written in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 concerning the creation is true as well. Paragraph 2 of the Confession says, After God had made all the other creatures, he created humanity. He made them male and female with rational and immortal souls, thereby making them suited to that life lived unto God for which they were created. They were made in the image of God, being endowed with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. They had the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it. Even so, they could still transgress the law because they were left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. After God had created all the other creatures, he created man. Male and female, he created them. Man was a culmination of God's creation. He created them with rational and immortal souls, which distinguishes man from the rest of the creatures. Man was created in the image of God. God's image upon man consists of three things, according to Matthew Henry. And I thought these were really good, so I'm going to read them to you. He said, man, man was made in the image of God, number one, in his nature and constitution. Not of his body, but of his soul. God has no body. He says, God put honor upon man that the word was made flesh. The son of God was clothed with a body like ours and he will clothe ours with a glory like that of his. It is the soul of man that does especially bear the image of God. The soul of man considered in its three noble faculties, understanding, will, and active power is perhaps the brightest clearest looking glass in nature in which to see God. Man was made in the image of God in his place and authority. Adam is given dominion over the inferior creatures. He acts as God's representative on earth. But Adam's government of himself, by the freedom of his own will, has in it more of God's image than his government over the creatures. And man was also made in the image of God in his purity and rectitude. God's image upon man consists in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. God created man to think in a rational manner, to make decisions, to think logically. He gave us minds. He expects us to use them. He gave man immortal souls, not to be confused with eternal. God's being is eternal. Man's soul was certainly created by God, therefore it has a beginning. But man's immortal soul will live forever, even after death. We learn this in the last chapter of the confession, that upon death, God's elect will be united to Christ, while the reprobate will reside in a perpetual state of condemnation. The soul is incapable of dying, 
not because of the soul's own power, it's because of God. He preserves our souls. Man was created to live a life unto God. Created Adam and Eve, their lives were not their own. They were created to be lived out for God. Because man was created in the image of God, he was endowed with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. So that man could know God, he could live in obedience to God, and he could rightly worship God. Earlier we spoke of the way God organizes uh, his creation by separating and dividing and making distinctions. He continues this pattern when he creates mankind. He made them male and female. He created Adam and Eve in his image. Men and women both have equal value and dignity in God's sight, but they have distinct roles. God created them differently from the other creatures and from each other. He formed Adam first. He formed Adam from the dust. And he formed Eve from Adam's rib. This is significant because it shows Adam's position in the creation. It shows his position of authority. He created uh, them one for another. He created them as husband and wife. An example to us today. You know, if we're to live with a woman in a relationship, she needs to be our wife and vice versa. God gave uh, the man and the woman different roles to fulfill within the creation. He gave Adam the responsibility of, of working and keeping the garden in Eden. Adam was created to work. Eve was created to be Adam's helper. God gave Adam the responsibility of naming the animals. And this act of naming the animals shows Adam's authority over the animals. The creation was in subjection to Adam. Adam even gave the name woman to his wife Eve. And yes, this, this act even proclaims his authority over his wife. She was to be in subjection to her husband. The Apostle Paul and Peter both teach this in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 2. We just studied this on Wednesday night, verses 12 and 14. The Apostle Paul addresses the roles of women and men in the church. And he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul says that the order of creation should be followed. Why? Because God created men and women in those distinct roles. And God said it was very good. So again, we see scripture is sufficient for our lives in the church, for the ordering of our family, not just in Adam's day, not just when Paul wrote that letter to Timothy, but in our day as well. The confession says that the man and the woman had the law of God written on their hearts. What does this mean? It means that God gave them the innate ability to know right from wrong, that which is good from that which is wicked. He gave them a conscience. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve break the only command that God had given them to keep, they feel ashamed. They hide from God. They know they committed 
sin and it grieves them because they know that it grieves God. Romans uh, 2, 14 and 15 says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. God had given Adam and Eve the moral law. He wrote it on their hearts. He created them with a rational mind to understand it. He gives them righteousness and true holiness, but he leaves it up to them to keep his law. And they were very capable of transgressing God's law because God left them to the liberty of their own will, which unlike God's will, was subject to change. Paragraph three of the confession reads, in addition to the law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. As long as they obeyed this command, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. God did not just create Adam and Eve and then leave them to themselves. In addition to having God's law written in their hearts, he'd also give them specific instructions. They were commanded to have and raise children to be fruitful and multiply. They were to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing on the earth. God sustained them by giving them food, every green plant and the fruit from every tree, except for one. In Genesis 2.16, we see that the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God gave this commandment to the man, to Adam. He did this before he created Eve, before the woman was created. So ultimately, the keeping of this command rested on Adam's shoulders. The authority that God had given Adam also came with a great responsibility. He had a responsibility to care for Eve and make sure that she followed the command as well. And as long as they kept the command, as long as they were obedient to God, they would be happy in their communion with God. And they would continue to have dominion over the creatures. So what happened if they broke the commandment? Death says, you shall surely die. And this is where chapter four of the confession ends. Just kind of leaves us hanging. But chapter six of the 1689 confession, which we'll study in a few weeks, picks up right, right where this chapter leaves off. But we, we know the rest of the story. We know that Adam and Eve, we know that they failed in keeping God's command. Like I said in the beginning, the creation account is significant. It's significant because it establishes God and his authority 
Uh, it shows that shows us man's position in the creation and his position with God, and it sets the stage for the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. And it's it's under attack, you know, as we learned through those three false teachings that have crept into the church, the Genesis account is under attack. And we must fight diligently to defend Scripture everywhere, but beginning with Genesis. It's important. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us this uh, wonderful account of your creation in Scripture. God, I pray that, Lord, we would, we would know and we would understand the, the gravity with which these two chapters, uh, the information in them, the, the gravity that, the, that there is here. Lord, these are important. These are weighty, weighty matters. God, it's not just a, a simple historic account. Lord, this is, this is something that we need to defend as truth because it's being attacked. It's being attacked by um, evolutionists. It's being attacked by secular humanists. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the strength and the courage to defend what your word says. In Jesus' name, amen.